All right, in terms of announcements, we have a couple of announcements. Number one, there will, um, uh, the voting goes on, early voting goes on tomorrow. If you don't get voted, get to vote by tomorrow, then you need to go in next Tuesday. I think most of you in front of me have probably already voted, and um, uh, but others need to be reminded about that. I think this is an incredibly significant election. And uh, I think I think the elections for the next 20 or 30 years are going to be extremely significant. So I encourage you to do that. And then on the, uh, the one other thing is in two weeks from tomorrow we have our monthly deacons meeting on the I think that's the 19th, and we will not have men's prayer breakfast either in November or December. We'll crank back up again in January. Uh, there are several reasons for that. So, let's um, get ready for class tonight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord uh, because it is God the Holy Spirit's indwelling and filling ministry in the life of the believer that is what sets us apart from every other believer in history. We in the church age have such a privilege and that is what distinguishes us, one of many things that distinguishes us from other dispensations. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful above all things, that we have a relationship with you and we have direct access to your throne of grace because the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins, paid the penalty, and made it possible for us to have uh, eternal salvation at no cost to us, and that as our high priest, he opened the way that we might come directly into your presence through prayer. And Father, we do pray for our nation. We pray for this election. We pray that you might restrain those who would seek to corrupt it, those would, who would seek to uh, interfere in it. And Father, we know that that always goes on, but in recent years with technology, that is worse. More, they have more potential for corruption than ever before. Father, we pray that you would expose their evil. And Father, we pray that you would... Uh, continue to provide us with leaders, and we pray that above all they would be leaders who understand Scripture and can apply eternal principles, but above all we need those who will be able to operate on the principles of our law 
and the Constitution. And Father, we pray that you might uh, continue to protect us in a way that we can send out missionaries and continue to uh, support Israel. And Father, we pray for our study tonight that we might come to understand what's going on and be encouraged by it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and I have titled this message, The Progress of the Gospel. The Progress or Expansion of the Gospel. Because that's the the focal point, as I'm going to show you as we get started here. And one of the things we should remember is that when we have our uh, Bibles out, which I don't have. When we have our Bibles out, when we look at Philippians chapter 1, we recognize that there is a break that occurs if you're looking at the way many Bibles break it. Uh, I'm using the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible. And uh, they don't print that anymore, but you can get it used. And I like it because the article on dispensationalism was written by the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. So when I can't remember what it is, I can at least turn to that article and be reminded. Anyway, we have a prayer from verse 3 down to verse 11 as it's broken down in that study Bible. I've got a New American Standard right here. Let's see how Dr. Ryrie broke it down in his Ryrie Study Bible. Now, he's got it broken again in verse between verse 11 and verse 12, and then he breaks it at... Um, No, I'm looking at the wrong chapter, Robbie. Get in the right chapter. Okay. He breaks it between 11 and 12, and then he has the next break at the beginning of the next chapter. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is I have struggled with this for a long time because I remember teaching Philippians before I went to seminary. And one of the things that, and even when I started this series, I was thinking this, that you frequently see is because the word is used a lot, and that's the word joy. And Dr. Pentecost has a commentary out on, uh, I think it's called Joy for Living, uh, commentary on Philippians, and there's a number of others, and they put that word joy in there, and they talk about that being the theme of Philippians. And the reason I belabor this a little bit, it's so important to figure out what the what the writer is talking about in terms of his of his main idea his main theme because there there almost always is one i've struggled in some books and i still haven't resolved it for every one of them but i remember when i was um out of college and really getting into biblical study that at that time charlie clough was pastor at lubbock bible church and i wanted to learn more about the Old Testament, and he taught more about the Old Testament. And he would start off, and he would tell you the main purpose of the book and structure his 
organization of the book in terms of its main purpose. Now, I didn't realize at that time where he learned that, but he learned it at Dallas Seminary because in the Bible Exposition Department, that's one of the things they focus on. And if you go into the upper level in the doctoral program, then they do have a course. It's actually two courses where every major Bible X, that's what we call it, Bible Exposition, we call it Bible X. And Bible X writes an argument paper for every one of the 66 books of the Bible. And in an argument paper, you go over the background, you get provide an outline, but, you, but you're basically saying that it, an argument in the sense of what an attorney will present as a case for why somebody's innocent or somebody's uh, guilty. And so every book has an argument. What is the author trying to say? And everything he says fits that thesis statement, as it were. And I find this to be true in almost every book that I have taught. I have tried to organize it in that manner. And it's not joy. It's not rejoicing, even though that word's used a lot. It's the expansion of the gospel. And I came to that through studying, reading a number of other papers and everything. The mood you know, when you talk about literature, you talk about the mood and the tone. Uh, the mood and the tone is one of joy and rejoicing. But what are, what's the joy and rejoicing related to? It's related to the expansion of the gospel. And good literature has a, will have an introduction and a conclusion. In James, in James chapter one, James is one of the one of the easiest to recognize and uh, one of the one of the best to teach on this. You have an introduction that starts in James one two and it goes down to um, James one eighteen, and then you get the organizational statement in verse nineteen. My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. I mean, slow to speak and slow to wrath. That's your organization. Chapter 121, he starts talking about hearing and doing, which is parallel to um, uh, hearing and doing is parallel to uh, hearing and applying. And that's what he's talking about. Hearing is is um, uh, learning or listening is, is uh, hearing and doing is applying. And that goes down to the end of chapter 2. And then chapter 3, he starts off, my brethren, let not many become teachers. So he said, first of all, he said, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. So don't everybody be teachers. So that's chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he shifts over to uh, mental attitude sins, and he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Those are, And he talks about... um, uh, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. These are all mental attitude sins. And so he, he, when he says anger, he is using that as one mental attitude sin to summarize the other. So the introduction introduces the theme of James, which is endurance in times of testing. 
And testing is not difficult situations. Testing is really any time you have to make a decision between applying the word and not applying the word. And then, uh, and so he talks about uh, uh, endurance. Hupomene several times in the introduction doesn't talk about it again until you get towards the end of the uh, epistle. And then he uses the synonym for patience, makrothemia. And it says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, you also be patient. And he talks about patience uh, several times as he gets to the conclusion. So you have an introduction which sets the main theme. You have a conclusion that reiterates the main theme. And you have three basic divisions be uh quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And that's the outline for the epistle. And just about every epistle that I've worked through, you can come up with that. He tells you what he's writing about. You just have to uh, figure it out, and uh, and it works out. Well, what we saw when we got into the introduction, which has two parts, the first part is from 2 to 11, and the second part, which is, a more of a personal application of every theme that is stated in verses 3 through 11. It goes from 12 to 26. And, and, and you can see this kind of a clear break uh, between 26 and 27 gr- based on the grammar and the vocabulary beginning verse 27 and 27 uh, down to um, uh, about verse uh, four, four verse ten is your main body and develops this. And it's all about the themes, the key ideas that are present in the introduction. And that just makes it such great literature. It's very well thought out and, and very well uh, structured. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at this overview of Philippians 2, 12 to 26. That's the next part of the introduction, 12 to 26, and see what the main themes are there that we're going to be focusing on. The idea here is the expansion of the gospel, the progress of the gospel, the spread of the gospel. And then, and we're not going to get to this tonight, defining what the gospel is, because that has to be understood. And we're going to come back and we're going to see that a main idea here that Paul is getting at, especially in the first three verses, 12 to uh, 14, is that all things work together for good, so relax and quit trying to change things. (laughs) Quit being upset about things being the way they are. Okay, so we'll start with this overview of Philippians 2, and I want to remind you of the major themes that are touched on in 3 through 11. And so we're going to look at these themes because every one of these themes, every one of these ideas is is expanded in terms of Paul's personal application and his it, it's so what we see in verses 12 down through uh 26 is somewhat autobiographical dealing with the problems that he has faced. So in the first part we saw this use of the word fellowship. And in verse 5 we read, he's thankful for your fellowship in the gospel. And in the way we normally use fellowship as a term related to some sort of social involvement, that's difficult to understand. 
But as I pointed out when we went through it, the core idea of koinonia isn't like social interaction fellowship. It is a partnership towards a common goal. And the common goal in for Christians goes back to the Great Commission, which is taking the gospel to every corner of the world, basically, is to make disciples of all mankind, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I commanded. So fellowship in the gospel here it has to do with the Philippian church and their financial support, their financial partnership with Paul in the expansion of the gospel ministry. The second thing that we see is when we talk about that uh, verse that is often abused to refer to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the P in tulip. Uh, It doesn't mean that at all, contextually. Uh, He says uh, in verse, what is that? Verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I showed you that the good work there is not salvation. The good work there is their financial contribution. This is a thank you note for the money that they put together to send to Paul. And they started to support him once he left Philippi and was on his way to Thessalonica. So we have this idea that the good work which was begun is this financial partnership. Uh, third thing, Paul's hope. He has a confident expectation. We read here in verse 6, he says, has the word uh, being confident. And that word in the Greek is repeated several times in the first chapter. So it's his confidence. It's a confident expectation and his confidence is that God would mature them in this work, not bringing them to spiritual maturity, but bringing them to maturity in this work. That is their support of his gospel ministry, which, of course, is correlates to their spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And he uses the word phroneo. Paul and the Philippians have a common mindset, phroneo, which means uh, what, uh, to think. And that word shows up a lot in chapter 2. And its focus is on think on these things, which is think about humility. So that is developed in chapter 2. And he says that this work would bear fruit from the beginning, from when they first began to financially support him, until the day of Christ. Because, as I pointed out, it goes on generationally from one year, from one group to the next that they supported Paul as he made his travels. He went to Corinth and there he had ministry with, um, Ananias, uh, not Ananias and Sapphira, but with, uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila and with Apollos. And so his ministry to them, then they go out and they minister and they lead people to the Lord and they teach people. And then that goes on to another, uh, from, from them to generation to generation, century to century. And it's still going on because the rapture hasn't occurred. And so all of this is accruing to, uh, the Philippians because of the, that's the fruit from, from their financial participation with the apostle Paul. And then, 
and 6, we see that the Philippian believers were joint partners with Paul, both in his chains, a word that is used not only in the first part of the introduction, but at least three or four times in the second part of the introduction. Sees it, ties it together. The Philippian believers were joint partners with Paul, both in his chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That concept is repeated again in the second half of the introduction. And it's developed and foreshadows chapter 3. And then seventh, those who grow in love as worked out by participation in the gospel ministry will grow in pure and purity and blamelessness until the day of Christ. Need to fix the grammar there. And, and as they will be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. That, those ideas are illustrated by what Paul says about his own life in the second half of the introduction and in what he is, uh, uh, exhibiting for the, for the Philippians. So all of this, all of these things are de- further developed in the second part of the of the introduction. All right, so now what do we see? Let's summarize this in terms of what those points that we just saw. He mentions the progress of the gospel. See, that's what they're involved in. They're involved in uh, this ministry of the gospel. They're financially supporting it. It's a, there's a progress in verse 6. He began a good work in you. He'll complete it until the day of Christ. And even though it involves um, uh, chains, and he is still involved in the defense of the gospel. So there's the mention of progress in the gospel as exhibited in one six, uh, and and it's summarized by the Greek word prokope. And in prokope, you have something very interesting. The, this word means to, it means progress, it means expansion, it means development. Uh, any of those words could fit, but here, con- context, it would be the progress or uh, the expansion of, of the gospel. And so it, it, it's in, it, it is going to further develop the idea of one six. Second thing we see is that Paul's circumstances of imprisonment uh, are summarized by the use of the term chains. Now, along the way, he may have been chained. But remember, the Apostle Paul was going to Jerusalem in order to observe or to be there for, uh, for Passover. And when he was quietly going about his business in the temple, he was spotted and identified by Pharisees who started a riot, and the Roman soldiers had to come in and rescue him. But he was arrested because the Philipp- i mean, the uh, uh, the Pharisees accused him of starting the riot. Well, they took him from there to Caesarea Maritime, which is Caesarea by the sea, which is where the uh, proconsul was headquartered. And they kept him under house arrest there for two years. Beautiful, beautiful location. But you're still under house arrest. In my, my, everybody was saying, uh, what are we going to do? I mean, all the Christians are, what, Paul can't go anywhere. So how can the church grow? 
but he's going to counter that with what he says here. So he is, uh, he was there and then he was taken by ship to Rome and shipwrecked. And then he was taken to Rome and put under house arrest for another couple of years. So you've got about five years here where, as I pointed out in, in our study in Ephesians, people were discouraged that, that how can the gospel go forth if Paul's limited in his travels and he's, he's locked up. So he uses this terminology chains, uh, in the first part first part of the introduction, and then he says, my chains are in Christ in 113, and he's uh, confident by his chains in 114, and he uses the phrase to add affliction to my chains in 116. So these are the uh, three or four of these verses, 113, 14, and 16, all repeat chains from his original statement in 117. So you see the connection. Third, Paul's mission, he states, when he is in the first part in Philippians 1-7, is the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word defense is the Greek word apologia, which is a legal term for presenting a legal case in defense of some truth. So he is uh, in defense and confirmation of the truth of the gospel. This is echoed in 117, where he says, knowing that I am appointed for the apologia, for the defense of the gospel, Philippians 117. So that's another point of connection between the first half of the introduction, the second half of the introduction. Fourth, he talks about the spiritual virtue of being of love being knowledgeable and discerning, and he states that in verse nine, where he says, "I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, for the purpose in verse ten that you may approve the things that are excellent." And so he exhibits or demonstrates those virtues in the way he handles himself while in house under house arrest. And that is a testimony to the Praetorian Guard, and the word about that goes throughout the um, uh, throughout Rome. So in verse 13 we read that it's become evident to the whole Praetorian Guard and to all the rest, everyone else in the government, uh, all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. That's his priority. He doesn't see himself as being imprisoned or locked up or under house arrest by the Roman Empire, but Christ has him locked up for a purpose. And so he is totally relaxed. He's calm. He's not... Uh, getting impatient or angry or anything because he knows that God is in charge and that even though these circumstances appear to be negative and there are certainly some that are discouraged that Paul's in prison, what are we going to do? He says, this is positive. God is using this. I don't have to go anywhere, and the gospel is spreading in Rome. In verse 13, he used that phrase, my chains are in Christ. In Philippians 1.17, he talks about this uh, one group that is uh, encouraged and emboldened 
to proclaim the gospel by his example. He says the latter, that's that group, out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So he is, uh, he, what's he exhibiting here? He is exhibiting the fact that under uh, the, the, what he said about love being discerning, he has made it, he has come to discern that even though there are some who are preaching the gospel from wrong motives, they're preaching it out of jealousy, they're preaching it out of uh, a desire of selfishness, which is contrary to love, which is what we uh, looked at in verse verse nine. Uh, even though they're doing it for the wrong reason, he, by knowledgeable love, he discerns that it's better for them to be preaching the gospel, even if it's from wrong motives. People are still getting saved, so he is. Uh, that he's exhibiting what he means and illustrating what he means by um, uh, having love and knowledge and discernment back in one, uh, one nine and ten for the purpose that you may approve the things that are excellent. It's more excellent that p- more people are saved, even if people are giving the gospel for the wrong reason, than if there are less people saved. And you can turn on your television and watch all kinds of televangelists with screwy theology, but many of them barely get the gospel right. They don't take a lot of time to teach it, but they do teach a basic, in many cases, that you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And we can rejoice in that, not the rest of it, just that. Fifth, Paul's imprisonment was not a hindrance to the gospel, but in fact it led to its progress or its expansion through the testimony of the guards and through emboldening more preachers. Verse 14, most of the brethren in the Lord have, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the gospel is going forth. So we see that progress mentioned uh, back in verse uh, verse 6 is uh, evident here. Se- uh, did I miscount? No, 5, and then we go to 6. Uh, through Paul's pure and blameless conduct, the majority of believers were encouraged and became more confident by his witness. So they're, they're looking at his example, and you, you can just imagine what a lot of people may have been uh, may have been thinking as they as they look at Paul, and they're thinking he's not upset, he's not impatient. He's not getting mad at the guards. He's calm. He's not worried. He's not uh, filled with anxiety. Notice later in the epistle he says, be anxious for nothing. He's not filled with anxiety because he's been arrested, and he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. He could lose his life, or he could, the Lord's plan could be for him to continue to, excuse me, continue to live. So as a result of the fact that he's relaxed, everybody else is relaxed, and they become confident in God's care for them. 
So that's very important to understand that. That's, that's the role of the spiritual leader. The seventh, though both groups proclaimed Christ, Paul's knowledge and discerning love recognized that one group was motivated by selfish ambition in contrast to love and goodwill. And as I pointed out a minute ago, Philippians 1.10 says that you may grow in a knowledgeable and discerning love, that you may approve the things that are excellent. And so in 1.15, he recognized that some preached Christ even from envy and strife. Verse 16 adds selfish ambition. So he is discerning. He sees that some are doing this out of a motivation of selfishness and competition. Then there's another group that he recognizes, and they fit the category of being pure and without blame, as he uh, explained it in verse 10, that, that the reason you should grow in a knowledgeable and discerning love is to approve the things that are excellent, that you may be pure or unsullied and without blame till the day of Christ. Now, one of the reasons that I chose to use pure pure or unsullied, they fit it, is because the, the word in New King James is, is sincere. But there's another use of the English word sincere later on in this introduction, and but it's not the same Greek word, so we have to use different words because they're different in the Greek. So... Um, he recognizes that there's one group, point seven was the group that is selfish, and this group is the group that is motivated by love and uh, goodwill. So that illustrates what he was teaching about love in verses, verses eight and nine, and, or nine and ten, rather, nine and ten. And we have not, the ninth point is that in the section from 118 to 26, so it's too long, it's eight verse, about seven and a half verses, so I didn't want to put all that up on the, uh, up on the screen. But from w- the second part of 118, 118, he says, uh, Christ is preached and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice from that phrase, down to the end of 26, Paul's demonstrating this discerning love by realizing his desire on the one hand is to be with Christ. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He is confident that he's going to continue to live and that he won't be executed in prison at this point. And so he says, according to this earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. And there he says, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he's not worried about dying, but he believes that God's going to keep him alive for a greater reason, which is what happens, of course. Uh, Verse 22, I live on in the flesh. This will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard-pressed between the two. So he has one desire. And I know some of you have said this recently. 
I'm sure getting tired of living in this crazy, corrupt world. I can't wait for the Lord to take me home. And so there's part of him that's just saying, I I hope the Lord's plan is for me to go home. But then he thinks about all the ministry opportunities that he has not yet accomplished. And he says, but no, that's, that's really the better. So he, again, he's applying that discerning love at that point. So he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. See, he's not going to talk, it's better for me to go to heaven, but it's more needful for others that I stay here. He's not focusing on selfishness. And in verse 25, he says, being confident, there's another repetition of confident, that word confidence. I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So that is our ninth point. So you see from this that there is a unity in this introduction, and the division comes uh, in where I've placed it between 11 and 12, and then again between 26 and 27. 27 will start the main part of the epistle. Now, the first part uh, could really be divided into two sections. Three through seven is this prayer of gratitude, and uh, eight uh, and nine through 11, excuse me, two through eight is the prayer for gratitude, and nine to 11 is his uh, prayer for their spiritual growth, their advance and increasing uh, increase in love, that it may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment, ultimately uh, producing the fruits of righteousness, which are uh, through, by or through the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he shifts, and he's talking now about himself. He was talking about his prayers and prayers for the Philippians in 3 through 11, and now he is talking about uh, what is going on in, in his life. And so we come to these first three verses, which are one sentence in the, uh, in the Greek. And so we'll see that 1 through 18a represents, I mean, 112 through 18a represents uh, uh, the first part of the second part of the introduction, and he's talking about how he, this is manifest in his life. So he starts off, and he says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the thing which happened to me the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the progress of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole praetorian guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So let's look at these three verses at this sentence, because this sentence, and especially the first part of it in verse 12, is really the topical sentence for the entire section from uh, verse 12 down through verse 26. He, the, and that's what I have in blue text. The things which have happened to me 
have actually turned out for the furtherance or the progress or the expansion of the gospel. And that's an important thing to understand because when we get our focus as individuals on a certain plan, a certain things are going to happen and we're going to go and we're going to do X, Y, and Z, but the Lord has another plan. Now, your plan may not have the gospel and your spiritual growth as a priority, but God's plan does. So one of the first things I think people need to come to understand is that you may wish to do a lot of things in this life, and you may have your bucket list, but God has a different plan because God's priorities are related to uh, that which has value for eternity. In other words, the things that are excellent, whereas so often our plans and our desires have to do with temporal things and achieving doing things that would and there's nothing wrong with having our plans for traveling to certain places or you know I had a friend I grew up with and one of his life's ambitions was he wanted to go to a world series he wanted to go to the Indianapolis 500 he wanted to go to the super bowl there's nothing wrong with having plans like that or traveling to traveling to different countries or accomplishing a lot of things in academics, gaining different degrees. There's nothing wrong with those things. But they have to be subordinated to what God's objectives are for our life. And his objectives have to do with the expansion of the gospel and our own spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So what Paul is basically going to say here is that is given examples of the things that happened to me. The things that happened to me are for the progress of the gospel. Now, the next thing that we should note here, just in terms of structure, is this phrase, uh, so that. And this is a word in the Greek that indicates a. it's introducing a, uh, a dependent clause, a result clause, with the result. So the, he, he said, this, the things that have happened to me, we'll talk about what that is in a minute, all the things that have happened to him were people thought this was a negative, this is going to restrict the gospel. But he's saying, no, God's plan was to use this to expand the gospel with the result that, and it introduces two results. The first result is in verse 13. The first result of the things that have happened to him is that the Praetorian Guard has come to understand and hear about Paul and the gospel. And the second thing is that it has encouraged and emboldened the fellow believers in Rome to stand up and to be bold in their communication of the gospel to those around them and not to be motivated by fear. So that's the basic structure. Now let's just sort of summarize what's said here. Paul wants them to know, first of all, Paul wants them to know that what has happened to him is for the progress and expansion of the gospel. Basically, what he is reminding them of is what's embodied in Romans 8, 28. This was, again, one of the early promises my mother had me uh, memorize when I was a child. And we know that all things work together for good 
to those who love God and to those who are called, the called according to his purpose. Now, some of you have heard uh, this reiterated as, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And that is probably true, but that's not what the text says, okay? It is a, there is a textual variant in a, in a few, a very few manuscripts. And they're not very strong manuscripts, except there are, uh, you have four basic manuscripts that are called the Alexandrian manuscripts that were the they're old manuscripts. Older isn't better. You've heard me say that many times. Uh, they're, they're third century. But see, an eighth century manuscript that is a faithful copy of a more accurate second century manuscript is going to be more accurate than a third century manuscript. So just because it's older doesn't mean it's better. And that was a theory that was introduced in textual criticism in the late 19th century. And I have studied this, and I disagree with that theory. But nevertheless, this really isn't even a debate between what is called the critical text view and the majority text view, because the critical text has this, the majority text has this. It's just about uh, maybe six or eight known manuscripts that have a different reading, and they can probably be traced back to one of those, either one of those Alexandrian uh, there are two Alexandrian ones that say it the way it's in the New King James and New American Standard, etc. And there's two that have it the other way. And they may go back to where some scribe was rewriting it or paraphrasing it in the margin and got picked up as the way it should be translated. That happens uh, sometimes, more, more often than we suspect in places. But we can usually, by comparing manuscripts with manuscripts, figure these things out. So this is the better reading. The Byzantine manuscripts, the majority text, the critical text view, uh, two of the four main uh, manuscripts from uh, of the Alexandrian type, and all reflect this reading. So this is considered even by you know, Bruce Metzger and his commentary on the, on the apparatus of the Greek uh, New Testament. The second edition says there's no deba- really no debate over this whatsoever. So this is the, reflects the best reading in the Greek text. So Paul wants them to understand this. Now, remember when we were in Ephesians chapter 3, Uh, I pointed this out. So what has happened now in this second point is that what happened to Paul when he says, the things which happened to me, the things that happened to me, what occurred to me, all of this, he is reminding them or just summarizing all the things that happened from his arrest in Jerusalem, his house arrest sort of or palace arrest when he spent two years in Caesarea by the sea, and then his uh, going by ship to Rome, his shipwreck, uh, eventually getting rescued, taken to Rome, and then two years of house arrest. He summarizes all of that by just saying the things which happened to me. But this upset people. And one way we know that, and we studied this when we were in Ephesians 3 a couple of years ago, 
where Paul began to explain the importance of the of his ministry to the Gentiles and the unity of Jew and Gentile together in one body. And he starts off in the first two verses there. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. He's He wrote Ephesians near the same time he wrote Philippians while he is in, in under house arrest in Rome. And you see that, that M dash, that long line at the end of 3-1, it tells you he breaks off his thought. And so he breaks his thought, he says, if indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. So he's going to run down a rabbit trail for the next 11 verses and he's going to come, but he's going to conclude it by saying, therefore, in light of everything he covered from verse 2 down to verse 12, he says, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. What are those tribulations? It's the same thing he's talking about in Philippi, the things that happened to him. Uh, his from his arrest in Jerusalem all the way to his house arrest in in Rome, and he said, "What the problem is that everybody got their eyes on Paul and off of the Lord, and they put their eyes on Paul and said the growth and expansion of the church is dependent on Paul going out on his missionary journeys." And God says, "No, there's another way to, and a better way to do it, and that is I'm going to put him in jail." And everybody's going to come to him and go out and spread the gospel. And we're going to penetrate the household of Caesar with the gospel, which would never happen as a result of Paul uh, going on his missionary journeys. So God had a better plan. All things work together for good. Now, verse 3, as God providentially worked, Paul's testimony made its rounds among the Praetorian Guard and what they heard was the gospel. Can you imagine what must have been going around? People saying, well, who's this Jesus? What's this talk about Christos, the anointed one? What does that mean? What's he talking about? That's all he talks about. Remember what Paul said uh, to the, in First in Corinthians? He said to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he's talking about the gospel to the preacher. And these guys are coming out going, what? What does he mean? And then they're telling people. And so it gets people talking and, and wondering what is doing. And they're amazed because he's not upset with being under house arrest. He's not mad. He's got a great attitude. He's totally relaxed. He has uh, uh, joy, the Lord's joy, sharing the happiness of Christ. And uh, as a result of that, he is a testimony to the truth of the gospel. And by his, the way he lives and the way he applies the word, God is using that to gain a hearing uh, for the gospel. The second result that's given in that verse, remember the, the first result, so that it had become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And then the second result is in verse 14, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
So because they're confident, because even in his imprisonment, he is not getting upset, he's not fearful, he's not anxious, he's not trying to get out, he's not being manipulative, he's totally relaxed, trusting the Lord, trying to have Bible study with the Praetorian Guard. And as a result for that, the other believers are noting what he is doing. He is leading by example, and so they have confidence to boldly stand up for the gospel, leading by example. And that is what we should do. We should, as maturing believers, we should be able to relax that whatever is going on. And when we know that that God's in control, it's easy to relax. When I was in Kiev last year, and I was ready to leave early, and I went down after teaching for six hours that day, and in the afternoon I went into... um, I went to get my COVID test, and I was positive. I relaxed. I mean, it was just, it was like everything, it's calm. God's got me here for a reason. Putin may come in, the war may start, all of which happened. But I know that God wants me here. So why get upset? Why try to? change things, why try to manipulate things. There is a calm, as Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4, a peace that surpasses all comprehension. It just, there's nothing to get excited about. Philippians 1.12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for my furtherance of the gospel. I would rewrite that. I'm going to change one thing here, but I want you to come to know And I would change the brethren to brothers and sisters. Brethren was how you would address a crowd, whether it included men or women. But we live in a world today where that sounds sexist, and and that's just the way that they were. That's the way they talked. They weren't excluding anyone. We're all brothers in Christ. We're all uh, human beings who have been saved by grace through faith. So uh, it, it will just make it a little more precise by saying, but I want you to come to know, brothers and sisters, that the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the progress or expansion of the gospel. Now, this word, prokope, is a word that indicates progress or success. In BDAG, which is the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, I think that's the third edition of the Greek-English lexicon, the one of the best ones to look at, says that it means a movement forward to an improved state, progress, advancement, or furtherance. Furtherance sounds a little antiquated in English to me, so I like the word advance or progress. And it's used both in verse 12 and at 26, which brackets the whole section. When you have terminology in one verse and five or six verses or 12 verses later, you have it repeated. That is like an, that's called an inclusio in literature. In, in the artillery, that's like bracketing your target. In the artillery, to, in order to get your range, you may shoot the first shell and it's long. They do the same thing in the Navy. And then the second shell lands short 
then you can adjust, and the third shell lands right in the middle. They probably don't do that anymore because they have GPS and computers and everything else, so they don't have to waste ammunition. But uh, that's the idea in literature is you frame a section by the repetition of vocabulary. So it's their, the focus is on their progress and joy. So he's talking about the advancement of the gospel. That's why I think this is the theme, is the, the advance of the gospel. And he's going to connect that to key themes coming out of his uh, introduction. And we'll see that as, we, as I develop it. So we go to verse 13. So that, this is the Greek word haste, which indicates an introduction of a result clause. And as I just pointed out, it's going to give two two, uh, two results. And this connects passages, for example, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. That's progress. Verse 14, the word is used... um, or the word confidence is used both in verse 14 and in verse 25. Again, this ties these things together for us, that they become confident because of Paul's leadership, and this is grounded in God's word. So we're going to stop here tonight, and that's at we've covered verse 12. And, and, uh, 13, and next time we'll wrap up verse 14, dealing with, uh, co- confidence in the Lord, and then we'll go on and finish up this first section down to, uh, down to verse 18. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, and may we understand that when we are trusting in you, we have confidence. We can relax, we have a confident expe- ex, uh, understanding of the future, and whether um, we, as Paul will get to, whether we live or die, uh, dying is gain. So we should not be fearful, worried, anxious about anything, but we should be ab- about the mission that you have given us in terms of your ambassadors to this uh, generation. And as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, we are to shine as lights in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. And that is our mission, and we only do that by growing in spiritual maturity. So, Father, we pray that we would be challenged and encouraged just as these Philippian believers were as we study this. In Christ's name, amen.